It's always wonderful to be at Ave Maria. I'm very honored to be asked to speak. And it's always fun to listen to Dr. Long um, play with English language. And <laughs> Let me begin with a famous citation from Gotthold Lessing. If no historical truth can be demonstrated, then nothing can be demonstrated by means of historical truths. That is to say, accidental or contingent truths of history can never become the pr proof of necess necessary truths of reason. Now it is said, the Christ of whom on historical grounds you must allow that he raised the dead, that he himself rose from the dead, said himself that God has a son of the same essence as himself, and that he is this son. This would be excellent. If only it were not the case that it is not more than historically certain that Christ said this. If you press me still further and say, oh yes, this is more than historically certain, for it is asserted by inspired historians who cannot make a mistake. Ah, but unfortunately, that also is only historically certain. That these historians were inspired and could not err. That then is the ugly broad ditch, which I cannot get across however often and however earnestly I have tried to make the leap. We've come to Lessing's ditch. Which way should we go? Part one. Lessing's ditch is often said to indicate one problem. In fact, it indicates two. The first is the famous question of continuity between the historical Jesus of Nazareth and the New Testament portrait of Jesus as Christ, Lord, and Son of God. The second is the question of whether any contingent truth of history can in fact provide a proof of reason. The second question is about whether we know any universal truths other than by means of the philosophical and scientific study of natural realities. Lessing presumably believed what he read in the newspaper, historical contingent truths of reason reported to him, but only because it correlated already with his naturalistic beliefs about the world. Lessing's ditch presupposes then that the supernatural claims of divine revelation in the Bible must be understood by what David Hume and Ernest Trelsch would later call a principle of analogy. Any real contingent causes in the past must be just the same as natural causes we can observe now and articulate in universal form in philosophical and scientific versions. Consequently, natural causes alone should be referred to when we seek to explain biblical history. There is insufficient warrant to believe in any supernatural causality reported historically precisely because it violates the norms of nature represented by this naturalistic presupposition. From these two problems, the problem of the historical Jesus and the challenge of naturalistic causal explanation, emerge four kinds of approaches to Christology in the modern era. Each takes a position on these two questions. A first approach, which we can call naturalistic apophatic, posits that we cannot explain the world reasonably except by recourse to natural causes, but also that we cannot reasonably get back to any historically substantial or warranted understanding of who the Jesus of history was prior to New Testament writings. The New Testament is supernaturalistic theology all the way down, but insofar as it denotes supernatural mysteries, miracles, and exceptional statements of Christ regarding, regarding his pre-existence, it is not rationally credible. Speaking schematically, we might say that this is the pathway of David Strauss and Rudolf Bultmann. A second kind of approach, which we can call theologic and apophatic, posits that the, the New Testament is rightly understood as divine revelation of the Son of God in history, but that we cannot reconstruct a historical account of who Jesus was prior to and in any kind of proximate independence from the New Testament. This is the way of Martin Kehler and Karl Barth. 
We should abandon the epistemological works righteousness of studies of the historical Jesus and learn the truth of Christ from the grace of the Holy Spirit illuminating us through the medium of scripture. A third approach, which we might call naturalistic and cataphatic, posits that we cannot understand the origin of the Bible by recourse to supernatural causality, or must at least abstract from any such question when studying history, but that we can attain a fairly reliable historical portrait of the historical Jesus. Most of the mainstream intelligentsia in the historical Jesus movement studies, in historical Jesus studies movement, inhabit this niche, from Albert Schweitzer to Ernst Kesemann, and from E.P. Sanders to Geza Vermesh and Dale Allison. They seek to carefully uncover a likely depiction of who Jesus was before the gospel, so to speak, according to a naturalistic criteria of explanation. The final approach, theological and I will call moderately cataphatic, is that which posits that it is intellectually warranted to explain the unfolding of history by recourse to God's real activity in history, including his self-revelation, incarnation, prophecy, and miracles, but that it is also feasible from New Testament sources to consider who the historical Jesus was in his own era prior to the early Christian movement and in his own historical context. Here we could think of exegetes such as Raymond Brown, Martin Hingle, N.T. Wright, and John Meyer. We can also mention theologians such as Wolfhard Pannenberg, Walter Casper, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and Joseph Ratzinger. Of course, this latter category encompasses a wide variety of approaches, but all of these authors confess the divinity of Christ as a reality of history and of, to some extent believe that we can characterize Jesus constructively within his own historical setting before and as causally related to the unfolding of the Christian movement with more or less confidence in the New, Te New Testament depictions of Christ as reliably historically indicative. Catholic theologians have, it seems to me, the possibility of associating themselves with either the second or the fourth of these approaches, and the key differences between them will depend on whether and to what degree each one thinks that a historical reconstruction is either feasible epistemologically or warranted apologetically or theologically. For those who identify with the fourth approach, as I myself do, there remains still a fundamental question of methodological discernment. Let us presume that the principles of divine revelation do not derive from modern historical critical study of the historical Jesus as such. We know that Jesus exists now in the resurrection and that he truly lived among us as the Son of God to redeem the human race, not because we have demonstrated it per se by rational historical research or argument, but because we are enlightened by the grace of faith through the formal medium of apostolic testimony, the New Testament read within the context of the living tradition of the church, her liturgy, her saints, and her teaching magisterium. I'm presuming here a Catholic ecclesiology, but there is some commitment to tradition and Chalcedonian doctrine in particular among most Protestants who investigate these matters. Nevertheless, it remains to be determined whether we first study Jesus in history so as to argue for the rational probability that he made high claims about himself, for example, by whether believing already, uh, for example, uh, or whether believing already in his sonship, divinity, and sinless humanity based on the testimony of scripture, we attempt to depict in a plausible way based on modern historical methods how he most likely spoke of himself in his own era and how that self-depiction his teaching and his actions gave rise to the early Christian movement. And I'm alerting, I'm averting here to this, 
what I take to be the, the inward content of terms like Christology from below toward identifying Christ as divine and Christology from above, but making use of historical critical method. The first approach is, in a certain sense, merely rational to show it is possible or probable that Jesus may have spoken of himself and the kingdom of God in ways that could lead to beliefs such as those that the early Christians held. The second approach is apologetic and is far more prevalent in, systematic, in the Systematic Theology Guild. It seeks to provide a robust portrait of the historical Jesus, his life, ministry, miracles, sayings, conflicts, death, and historical resurrection. It is formally speaking, in terms of the formal object, theological or doctrinal, through and through, and it makes subalternate use of reasonable historical arguments and associations regarding history to derive a probable or possible depiction of a Jesus of history who stands in accord with the traditional confession of Christian faith. After all, what we do typically when we try to present people in history is to construct a likely narrative and contextual depiction that explains a series of causes and effects under a given set of conditions. Here, that kind of historical methodology is simply subordinated, subalternated, excuse me, to the study of God made human, his life, teaching, death, and resurrection. I take it that this latter approach is the most warranted for Catholic theology. Now back to Lessing's ditch. Part two. God was in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. But was Jesus aware of this? And if so, how? I've noted two questions that emerged from Lessing's famous text, that concerning the possibility of a historical depiction of Jesus and that concerning the reality of supernatural revelation in history. At the nexus of both these questions, there lies the crucial question of the historical consciousness of Christ. The Gospels themselves depict it in ways that seem hauntingly modern. Who do men say that I am? And indeed, who did Jesus of Nazareth take himself to be? The historical consciousness of Jesus is a factor in any real historical portrait of Jesus, in part because it touches upon the question of whether Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God, and therefore one in being in nature with the Father and the Spirit. So it, it's reflective of ontology. And relatedly, does he manifest an awareness of his filial identity, and does his deity have any effect upon the natural operation of his human intellect? Clearly, it is reasonable to argue that if God became human and manifested his identity to us in a human way through words and gestures, life and death, then he, the Son of God, was humanly aware of his own transcendent identity in some way. At the same time, it's also the case that Jesus' historical consciousness, consciousness needs to be understood against the backdrop of his historical context in the culture of Second Temple Judaism. If both these claims are true, then Jesus must have expressed his filial consciousness, his human awareness of his divine identity, in ways that were typical of his time. Yet again, here we face options. We might accord ourselves to the fourth of my approaches mentioned previously and think that the Son of God in his human life among us assumed a state of such lowliness that he was only imperfectly aware or somehow unaware of his divine status. Wolfhart Pannenberg, for example, claims that Jesus understands himself as a reformer of the law and a designated minister of God, bringing about a first initiative in view of the messianic kingdom of God, eventually perhaps identifying with the Son of Man, an eschatological figure. Pannenberg believes in the divinity of Christ and in the bodily resurrection of the Lord. He allies, however, this very modest view of Jesus' historical self-awareness 
with these other claims by arguing for its fittingness for ontological and soteriological reasons. Jesus' lowliness of self-awareness. Ontologically, it signals the free, canonic self-emptying of the eternal Son who lives out his eternal obedience to the Father precisely in and through this human self-expression of intellectual searching and unknowing. The lowliness of the Son and his eternal receptivity to the Father is expressed humanly through the human nescience of Jesus. It is fitting soteriologically because it shows Christ not only suffered innocently in the crucifixion, but also nesciently, not understanding perfectly what transpired. In this respect, he descended innocently into our alienation from God as one who is, we who are alienated from God and nescient of God in virtue of sin, he descended into that place as one who is without sin, so as to exchange places with us by a kind of penal substitution, one only envisageable in light of modern historical studies kind of Lutheran, renewed, penal substitutionary theory through human nescience in Christ. Rahner takes a slightly different approach. The historical Jesus saw himself as the ultimate eschatological emissary of God, the one who could bring Israel's history of prophetic witness to the reign of God to its perfection for all the nations. He referred to God as his father. His resurrection not only confirms this mystery of Jesus' self-designation as eschatological prophet, but also manifests plainly that his, his implicit designations of God as his father were indicative of his ontological sonship and preexistent deity. For both Pannenberg and Rahner, we know that Jesus is recognized as God most especially only in light of his resurrection, not due to his human historical consciousness or aims, not primarily. The Gospels are written in the wake of the Easter mystery of the resurrection and could be seen to project back onto the historical Jesus certain features of post-Paschal illumination present in the Christian community. Part three, an alternative proposal, the theandric human consciousness of Christ. At this point, we can note that the way we treat the question of the consciousness of Christ in Catholic theology relates very profoundly to the way we understand the two natures of Christ and their relations. How is the human nature of Jesus, the human mind and heart, impacted or influenced by his divine identity as the Son of God and by his divine nature. And likewise, what is the soteriological importance of, Jesus, of Christ's historical consciousness? Does he save us primarily through kenosis and identification with us in solidarity? Is the resurrection the core way in which you discover the divinity of the Lord? As Bruce Marshall has noted, a prominent trend in modern Christology can be characterized by the twofold phrase before the resurrection, all hail the historical critical method. After the resurrection, all hail the Nicene Creed. It's true that Pannenberg and Rahner are, and with them, biblical scholars like N.T. Wright make room for a broad array of visions of the historical Jesus as a subject in history whose ordinary human consciousness could be marked by his cultural context and whose self-designation and perhaps even self-assessment could evolve in a human way, all while preserving a confession of Chalcedonian faith. Nor can they be accused of a monophysitism that downplays the reality of the Lord's authentic humanity. But still some core elements of the gospel's depiction of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ seem to be missing and sociological dimensions of the incarnation obscured. Allow me to name only a few. So I'm taking issue in this paper really with Rahner and Pannenberg and wondering if this paradigm, which has been very influential, should remain normative. 
Most centrally, what is missing is the acknowledgement that Jesus' knowledge of his own identity is a key dimension of the mystery of the incarnation and likewise has important soteriological consequences. Jesus, precisely because he knows who the Father is, knows who he himself is as the Son of the Father. As we hear in Matthew, no one knows the Father but the Son, and no one knows the Son but the Father and those to whom the Father reveals him. Likewise, he knows who the Holy Spirit is. In John, when I go to the Father, I will send you the paraclete, the Spirit of truth. These are high, designa high designations of Jesus' self-knowledge in Matthew and John, obviously. They are, soteri they ha they have soteriological, they are soteriological consequences. Uh, there are soteriological consequences to the idea that each presents. The two main ones are these. First, an integral dimension of Jesus' mission is to reveal to us in a human way in history who the Father is, who he is, who the Spirit is. Second, and relatedly, Jesus is only the Savior because he can and does reveal to us this truth. Salvation is not merely about merit or propitiation or even about union with the divine, but also about knowledge of the Trinity. And Jesus can only illuminate us as distinct from being illuminated himself by the Father in or after his resurrection if he is able during his earthly life to manifest the truth about God in his teaching, actions, miracles, and suffering unto death to manifest that he is one with the Father who is truly God with us and is truly God with us, giving us to know God in himself. Couple these reflections with two more. The theandric acts of Christ and the soteriological offering of the cross. Theandric acts are acts Jesus can perform in virtue of his divinity and his humanity operating co-simultaneously. For example, he is depicted in all four canonical gospels as someone who is aware of his capacity to act in union with God to accomplish miracles as signs of the kingdom and presumably as anticipations of the mystery of the resurrection. Do you believe that I can do this? I do believe it. Then be healed. So the Jesus of Mark. The mysterious power of God resides in him and he can deploy this power actively when he should so wish. Actions of this kind implicitly manifest the numinous unity of God with the, uh, Jesus, with the God of Israel. And Jesus is, of course, depicted as being humanly aware of this capacity to act thus as the Son of the Father. The Trinitarian consciousness we mentioned above is deployed or manifest not only in Jesus' miracles, but also in the parables of the kingdom, his authority claims, and his prophecies regarding the crucifixion and resurrection. The theandric, theandric activity of Jesus as both God and man implies the presence in him of a distinctive human awareness and judgment as Jesus connotes his interpersonal relation of the Father to the Father and the Spirit through a range of actions and teachings. This Trinitarian consciousness of Jesus is also present in his act of self-offering in the Passion and the Cross. The three synoptic authors depict Christ predicting his death and stating that it has a universal saving meaning. I take it, for example, that Jesus' denotations of himself as the Son of Man are eschatological in meaning and that his several associations of himself with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 are meant to have redemptive connotations. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, he states explicitly that he intends to lay down his life in death and to take it up again in resurrection in view of the salvation of the world. The upshot of such statements is significant for classical soteriology. Anselm of Canterbury argues in the Curdeus Omo that the, the redemption is accomplished in part due to the fact that the Son of Man willingly gave his life to the Father out of love for the Father and the human race, meritoriously, even in the midst of trials and sufferings. 
This self-offering was meritorious for man because it was the offering of a sinless human being, but it was of infinite value because it was the offering of one who is God. We should note well that this vision of substitutionary atonement in which Christ offered himself for us in true obedience and love is at the center of the Catholic liturgy in which we offer the merits of Christ to the Father in the sacrifice of the Mass and communicate in the grace of self-offering he extends to the church so that she may herself in turn offer herself with Christ. But all this presupposes in some sense that the Jesus of history truly intended to offer his life for the sins of the world and was conscious of doing so. Part four, proportionate historical causality in the high claims of Christ. One might of course object that all the points I'm mentioning here could be counted as post-Paschal theologumena and that authors like Pennenberg and Rahner could accede to the theological substance of the New Testament teaching about the meaning of Jesus and the real ontological significance of his life while maintaining a more modest view of his initial historical self-awareness. In short, we only realize these truths about Christ after his resurrection and insert them back into his life by proje pro projective attribution as symbols of what he did truly accomplish. This is assuredly a coherent viewpoint, but allow me to note three things. First, the idea that a later historical figure has a more perfective and enriched view than an earlier figure is not always realistic. For example, is it true that the writings of later Platonists typically improve upon the earlier thinking of Plato? Do their writings convey more energy and depth than his as they bring his initial intuitions to perfection or explication? The same might be said of Aristotle or Augustine or Aquinas. Often the original source is the most powerful. So likewise, as Guardini pointed out in his important book, The Humanity of the Lord, the grand statements of Matthew or John that we see placed on the lips of Jesus are indeed presentations after the fact by the early Christian community, but they might also be diminutions marked by a lesser plenitude of perfection in their expression than the grandeur of the original statements themselves. Historical development is not always perfective or evolutive in the world of ideas. Even though many, many people in the, in the 19th century presumed this was always the case. In fact, it is almost always the case that the spiritual source is greater than the recipient who reports or transmits, especially in the order of the supernatural gifts of grace. Second, one can see the apologetic value of the stance I'm undertaking to criticize. That's to say something like what Ron or, or Pannenberg do. It seems to allow for the full human realism of a Jesus having only a modest special knowledge with a divine realism concerning the incarnation and resurrection. However, the apologetic value of this idea should not be overstretched. If God truly can become human and learn in a human way through a culture in time and place and also raise the dead bodily to redeem the real world, then he surely can also convey divine truth to the human intellect of Christ within the course of his ordinary human history within the context of Second Temple Judaism. There is no difficulty for God in his causality to both respect all that is integrally human and to be present and to manifest himself effectively in and through all that is integrally human. Third, there is an argument from fittingness. Christ should have the historical plenitude of knowledge in himself and convey it, and convey it to his church. This is the case because he is the savior of the church, not a member awaiting salvation only after resurrection. But it is also fitting since God conveys revelation to the human race in and through human historical instruments or mediums. It is unfitting to claim that the apostles after the resurrection and the Pentecost should as first century Jews within their historical context have a more perfect, illicit, explicit knowledge of the Lord than he had during the course of his own historical life, 
especially since they are members of the same time and culture. And another kind of spin-off of this idea is, why is it so hard for him to think universally about his own mission and activity if everybody after him does within a few years after his death? If they can do it in their historical time and place, and we're doing it now, he could do it, especially if he's God. <laughs> it doesn't mean there's no textual problems. I don't want to oversimplify. I'm just saying the causal reality is dense and can't, doesn't need to be oversimplified. Finally, there's a historical principle of causal explanation that follows from the last point. It is most reasonable to think that, the many, that many of the teachings of the apostles concerning Christ, his identity, and, and redemptive death, his intentions, and the sacraments came from Jesus himself. Not merely from a set of realizations and experiences that transpired after the resurrection. An obvious example concerns the Eucharist. This is the blood of the covenant. Do this in memory of me. As Martin Hingle points out, it is difficult to see how we could attribute the various institution narratives of Mark and Matthew, Luke and Paul to anyone other than the founder of Christianity historically. And yet to institute a ritual of sacrifice, making allusion to Exodus 24:8, taking place outside the temple with the 12 present as the seeming symbol of a new Israel, all suggests a very elevated consciousness on the part of the one instituting the rite. Here the theory of causal explanation for the genesis of the church overlaps closely with the previous argument from fittingness, that Jesus should especially and above all understand what he was doing, and that the apostles should understand it only afterward in the spirit, and even then less perfectly than the Lord. Part 5, Jesus' Hebraic Trinitarian consciousness, and I think really this, is, this whole section is, is the uh, development that is the, the rest of the paper. In the final part of this essay, I would like to consider briefly how one might hold that the historical Jesus possessed an elevated human consciousness of his own identity and unity with the God of Israel while expressing himself in the idioms and cultural modes of expression of his time. Essentially, I will consider very briefly four topics. First, from the point of view of Aquinas' Christology, how might we understand the real integrity of the acquired knowledge of Christ in relation to his beatific vision and infused knowledge? Second. How might the historical consciousness of Christ be affected by his cultural linguistic context and his acquired learning and teaching? Third, what do we mean by the Trinitarian consciousness in a Thomistic light? Fourth, how might we think about the Hebraic Trinitarianism of the historical Jesus by which he expressed his identity in the language and modes of his time? Evidently, here I only mean to indicate pathways of interpretation to intimate a larger view that is possible. First, then, Aquinas on acquired knowledge. As is well known, Aquinas denies that the Christ of the Gospels has faith or that he believes in his own divinity. Rather, he knows as man by an intuitive and immediate knowledge who he is subjectively as the Son of God in the same, and in the same light has an immediate knowledge of the Father and the Holy Spirit. What is more, he also has a habitual infused or prophetic knowledge by which he is given to know, not always, but only habitually, what is needed for the sake of his mission regarding the future, the state of the souls of those around him, the capacity he has to heal this or that person, and so forth. These two forms of knowledge overlap in part regarding their objects, but differ according to mode. Christ's immediate knowledge of the Father is constant, non-conceptual, and intuitive, and stems in a sense from his hypostatic union, since it permits him to know himself in his person, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and to save the human race by communicating perfect knowledge of God to us. While the infused knowledge of God is actualized habitually, determined by infused species, and given in view of Christ's particular needs in his mission, 
Both of these forms of grace knowledge, however, are embedded within and respect the integrity of Christ's natural acquired knowledge. As John Pierre Torrell has pointed out, Aquinas is the first medieval to make prominent use of the notion of a natural human acquired knowledge in Christ due precisely to the reality of his humanity, his natural abstract manner of knowing, and the phantasmal and linguistic conditions of his knowledge as man. Second then, historical conditions of the consciousness of Christ. None of this pertains directly, of course, to the question of what consciousness is. Aquinas himself rarely uses the word in Latin, conscius, though he does inter interestingly ascribe it to the Father in the mystery of the transfiguration, saying that the Father is conscious of the Son. If we are to think about Jesus' natural self-awareness as man in a modern light, and thus to think about consciousness, we should note the following. First, consciousness is a vague word that can apply to the self-awareness present in animals as well as in human beings, and therefore is applicable to the experiences we have of ourselves in and through our external and internal senses, as well as our intellectual and volitional states. It's a very broad term. I'm happy saying that dogs have some kind of animal consciousness. Second, if consciousness implies presence to self, it is distinct from knowledge that takes place through a formal medium, be it that of the senses or the intellect, but it does depend upon it and presupposes it. When we know something conceptually, which is proper only to human beings, we know through the medium of conceptual thought, but we are also conscious or aware of ourselves knowing the reality in question. Third, consciousness can only formalize itself in and through concepts wed to cultural linguistic contexts with their various symbols and conventional norms of thought. If, for example, Jesus is aware of himself as the Son of God in virtue of his immediate knowledge and his infused knowledge, he must nevertheless be humanly aware of who he is in an ordinary conscious way, and this requires that he think about himself in the linguistic tropes and symbols of Second Temple Judaism, not only in order to make himself understood, but more fundamentally because he's human. To think discursively as man, he must make use of acquired knowledge by which he reflects conceptually and expresses himself in the language and signs of his culture, even when he's just thinking in his own ruminations. Fourth point, Trinitarian, third point, Trinitarian consciousness. If Jesus of Nazareth expresses himself in a typically human way as one who is conscious of himself and his identity within the given cultural and culture and linguistic tropes of his age, he does so nonetheless as one who is also humanly aware that he is the Son of God and who is aware, however numinously, that he can and does act in unity with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. His human consciousness, therefore, is Trinitarian in form insofar as he is aware, in however clear or vague a way, that he is a subject who is eternally from the Father, who has come into the world to redeem the world, and because he knows he is the recipient of the Spirit of the Father, whom the Spirit reposes upon, and who will send the Spirit upon others. He himself will send the Spirit. This interpersonal Trinitarian set of intuitions, we might say, stands at the backdrop of all of Jesus of Nazareth's human activity and intentions. This interpersonal form of knowledge has a distinctive soteriological importance as well. Jesus is aware, however clearly or vaguely, of his divine origin and capacity to work with the Father and the Spirit. Consequently, his actions of miraculous healing, like his words and parables, but also his suffering and death, reveal a set of personal relationships that he is aware of as man. They reveal his personal intimacy with the Father and the Spirit, and therefore manifest to us the true inner identity of God as Trinity. This knowledge is salvific because it communicates to us an awareness of who God truly is in himself, and inaugurates the possibility of our genuine union with God by faith, hope, and charity culminating in the configuration to Christ our head in the grace of the resurrection.
Fourth point, Hebraic Trinitarianism. If this set of claims is true, then we can also think about Christ's human self-expression of his Trinitarian identity within the context of first century Israelite culture. How or in what way is he humanly aware that he is God, the Son of God, one with the Father, and so forth? Now here we are asking, actually at long last, about how the historical Jesus himself, prior to the records given to in the Gospels, sorry, not, not to the Gospels, given in the Gospels, might have spoken about himself in his own historical context, so as to convey the kind of impression of his own identity as to give rise to the early Christian movement, including the forms of designation that are attributed to him in the Gospels and epistles. Please note the conditional use of the term might. These are only probabilistic conjectures of a theologian who has a somewhat inadequate knowledge of exegetical literature. But the point is, in any case, however knowledgeable we are, it's definitely always conjectural and probabilistic. And so you can ask yourself what the use of probabilistic knowledge is within theology, and that's a good question. I think it's partially apologetic, and it's partly also discursive to think about what it must have been for Jesus in his own historical period to have lived out a humanly conscious life as savior and to give, it, give rise to the church. But the point is the theologian or the exegete doesn't have the burden of demonstration in the strict sense. Allow me to give a few examples. Allow me to give a few examples. First, functional and ontological sonship language. Consider the parable of the usurping tenant farmers from Matthew 21, 33 through 46. Jesus is depicted as telling a story of the prophets of ancient Israel who are represented as emissaries of a landowning king, systematically rejected by the Israelites who took the land to be their own until such time as the king decides to send his son, who the tenants kill, thinking they will now inherit the land once and for all. Now, this simple story is not Hellenistic in origin, seemingly, but marked by Israelite sensibilities. It clearly presents a bird's eye view of the divine economy of prophecy that culminates in the mission of the son. But the son is himself not merely distinct in function, but also seemingly in personal identity, since he is the son of the king and not a mere servant. Jesus' self-awareness of his functional and ontological distinctiveness is reflected here in parabolic form and is communicated in a way that is accessible to the widest possible audience. We could add that, uh, to these the many and varied ways that, Jesus, that Christ refers to himself, not only as a son of God, but as the exclusive son of God, denoting his awareness of a unique ontological status. So I'm just saying that I think you could take this unique sonship language, it's a classical move in modern apologetic, in, exegetically inspired theology of the historical Jesus to, to say that Jesus has unique sonship claims, that the historical Jesus must have used this kind of language, the Abba language, but also with other kind of um, coherent examples that seem to denote some filial consciousness or awareness. But you can take things like the parable where he shows his own functional and ontological distinctiveness and claim that there's some kind of high filial consciousness there. A second example, divine name theology. John's gospel famously depicts Christ applying the divine name to himself, for example, in chapter eight, where he claims that before Abraham was, I am. That's one example. He also seems to make the uh, use to use the phrase in Mark while also while walking on the Sea of Galilee and in his trial before the high priest where he says, I am to denote his own identity or presence. We heard a lecture, a very articulate lecture about why, the blasphemy, why it's considered blasphemy when he says he's sitting at the, high, at the right hand of the, of the uh, he will be seen at the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father, but also 
that the, the name of God is implicated, perhaps, in Mark, and some exegetes today do think that. The phrase is ambiguous in both these instances and may suggest an intimation of divine identity subtly manifest in Jesus' historical speech acts. In Matthew's resurrection scene, no doubt highly schematized, the apostles encounter Christ on a mountain in Galilee that echoes Sinai, a new Sinai, and receive anew the name of God, go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, another divine name instantiation. These various literary portraits of Jesus are clearly highly affected by the post-Paschal context and the Christian confessional awareness of the early church. Nevertheless, someone had to have been the first person to designate Christ by making use of the divine name. And in fact, the Gospels are all in accord in depicting Christ as this person. Subsequent Christians would speak of Christ as Lord, presumably with the implication of the Hebraic euphemism by which the divine name was denoted in Greek as Kyrios. So we see Paul express the divine name of Christ clearly in many passages, such as Philippians 2, 6 through 11, where Christ is given the name above every other name. Consequently, there is a real possibility of historical continuity between Jesus' own self-designation as I am and the early Christian movement's designation of him as Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, there are the many possibly implicit or overt allusions Jesus makes to his own pre-existence. Luke 12, 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. John 18, 37, for this I was born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Obviously, John's more explicit. These statements of origin may only refer to a temporal mission, but they also could intend to signify an origin in God and a pre-existent mission. Again, we find the depiction in Christ of a seed idea that appears in the New Testament in thematic fashion as explicated, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, and that when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. My conclusion from these reflections is threefold. It is fitting that Christ should possess a human self-consciousness of his own div divine ident identity, and that he should give expression to it in and through the cultural idioms of his day for ontological reasons due precisely to his divine identity and the reality of his historical human nature and his acquired human knowledge. <coughs> Second, there are soteriological implications to this view. Christ must know who the Trinity is to reveal to us who God is and to offer his life meaningfully to the Father on behalf of the human race. So we should be inclined to see the New Testament prescriptions to Jesus or attributions to Jesus of an elevated awareness of his identity as historically realistic, again for theological reasons. Third and finally, it is possible, if not necessary, to depict the historical Jesus as one who has denoted himself as having a divine identity and a Trinitarian consciousness within the historical conditions of his age communicated through the medium of Hebraic idioms, Sonship, divine naming, and pre-existent mission. The crisis of Christology is depicted in summary fashion by Lessing. It concerns belief in the reality of God's presence among us in history and in the capacity we might have to tell a concrete historical story of the way God's human life among us unfolded. Catholic theologians and scriptural exegetes have every reason to make use of modern historiographical methods in the service of the explication of the New Testament and the articulation of the mystery of faith. They can do so, however, precisely so as to illustrate 
what the first letter of St. John announces both to the church and to the whole human community through the medium of faith. We have come uh, that, that through the medium of faith, we have come into living contact with the very mystery of God, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing this that our joy may be complete. Thank you very much. I think we can take some uh, questions now for Father, if you could uh, queue up, and uh, if you would, I'll repeat uh, Professor Dominic's uh, suggestion that you identify yourself uh, in, in, before asking. Father, uh, Eric Mamie, Christ Queen Samaria, thanks so much, that was fantastic. Okay, thank you. Um, I noticed that <clears throat> throughout your wonderful paper, you didn't ever come down and say how many consciousnesses Christ has, one or two. So thinking about it in terms of sort of the Chalcedonian framework, um, are you suggesting that we take consciousness with two natures or consciousness with one person? And uh, going to your sort of wide definition of consciousness of self-awareness, uh, so it's an act of intellect or an act of will, uh, it seems like you could say that there's two. And then in your more strict definition of consciousness as presence, it seems like you also maybe were suggesting that Christ is present to himself in a human way, but also present to himself. Present to himself. To himself, yeah, in a divine way. And that would also seem to suggest uh, two consciousnesses. Um, and I noticed you went back and forth between Trinitarian consciousness on the one hand and elevated human self-awareness on the other. And so uh, could you kind of clarify yeah. How many consciousnesses do you think they are, and yeah. what's at stake for you in terms of talking about okay. Trinitarian consciousness on the one hand and elevated human self-awareness on the other? Yeah, Thanks. okay, so th that's a great question, Eric. Thank you. It's nice to meet you in the flesh. Um, so every time I said Trinitarian consciousness, I only meant Jesus' human awareness of the Trinity or Jesus' human consciousness regarding the Trinity, and I never meant uh, divine consciousness as pertaining to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in virtue of their divine knowledge of one another. Now, Eric is uh, extremely learned in uh, the nuances of the thought of uh, Bernard Lonergan, who, um, run, uh, working in the lines of, very much along similar lines is what I'm trying to develop here, or perhaps I'm working in similar lines along the way he tried to develop is probably a better way to say it. Uh, Lonergan also developed a whole other theory, which I make no allusion to here, other than to note that Aquinas talked at one point in uh, the Church of Pars about the Father having some kind of consciousness of the Son at the Transfiguration. Lonergan develops a whole notion of the, tr the consciousness of the eternal persons. Can we properly and analogically ascribe to the Father eternal consciousness of the Son and Spirit, to the Son eternal consciousness of the Father and Spirit, to, and so forth. And he says interesting things like, uh, Jesus, is, Jesus is divinely conscious of being human and humanly conscious of being divine which is a wonderful Neo-Chalcedonian articulation uh, of kind of the principles of dual operation from Third Constantinople, if you want to use this consciousness language. That being said, 
um, I never use the word consciousness to talk about the divine nature or divine knowledge. Now, I do think it's possible, I've read Lonergan on this, uh, insufficiently to make a final judgment. So I'll first of all say that. I don't have some definitive view on this. But insofar as I've spent time trying to watch Lonergan walk the tightrope uh, of articulating a theory of divine consciousness as he considers it in a properly analogical mode, I think he sometimes arrives at doing it. But as my metaphor may suggest, the fact that a person can walk very deftly on a high rope between two buildings does not mean that everyone should try it. And I am nervous about using the term in common parlance theologically or catechetically because I believe it's easily open, it opens itself easily to all kinds of crude anthropomorphisms. And we live in an age in which tremendous uh, uh, diversity, a tremendous diversity of anthropomorphism, anthropomorphisms exists regarding the divine nature, and I'm an advocate of divine simplicity, and I, I think it's very hard to get uh, people to think rightly about divine simplicity and talk about divine consciousness. So I clearly think the Father knows the Son, the Son knows the Father, and the, and the Spirit knows the Father and the Son, uh, but they also know each in, in virtue of the medium of the shared eternal truth and nature that they each possess as the one God. So how you work out a theory of consciousness is intriguing, uh, but I, it is an innovation that I think he probably arrives at developing in organic continuity with the tradition, but it doesn't mean for that matter it ought to be prescribed. That's my own kind of take on it. Uh, Brian Petrie, Institute. to thank you, Father, Thomas Joseph, for a really wonderful paper. But a lot of topics very close to my heart. My first book was on the Atonement, Jesus and the Atonement, and the second book is on Jesus and Last Supper, and I'm working on one in Jesus and the Origins of Christology. So uh, I really, really appreciate what you did here. Uh, one observation, and then maybe a suggestion for, for making it even stronger, because you know full well that there are circles, especially in exegetical circles, where even to say Trinitarian consciousness of the historical Jesus is going is to meet with a visceral uh, reaction of, of Isis and kind of thing. So, uh, the first one is just an observation. It seems to me uh, that in the quest of this Jesus in the modern period, one of the reasons so many major figures, and I'll include Wright in this as well, um, aren't able to go as far as the tradition does in terms of Jesus' divine self-consciousness is precisely because from Raimaris on, they exclude the miracles from acceptable data for the historical reconstruction of Jesus' self-awareness. So I'm thinking here, for example, of the walking on the water that you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. So when Jesus walks on the sea in John's Gospel, uh, it's implied that he does, uh, he's four miles away mm -hmm. from the shore when he does that. So, um, and, and then of course says the words, I am. Um, and I like to joke with my students, if he doesn't know that he's God by mile one, I suspect that by mile four he had it you know, figured out. This is, <laughs> this is a tremendous act of, of, of divine power over the natural elements. But in the minds of most modern historical Jesus scholars, those aren't actually admissible data, precisely because of the naturalistic methodology that's, that's governing the, the, the study. So one thing, it might be good to press on that, like the, the, the miracles of Jesus have to be brought into discussion. That's just one observation, or I appreciate your thoughts on that. The second suggestion would, has to do with the Jonah Thunderbolt. So I know you're contained there at the end about Jesus' Trinitarian self-consciousness. For me, at least, uh, Matthew 11 and Luke 10, when Jesus says the staggering words, all things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father and those you know, to whom the Son is revealed. The, 
Those are, according to the standard source critical hypothesis, those are in Q. That's a Matthean and Lucan parallel. It's not in Mark. So, you know, by all the normal, uh, uh, or at least the, the widely held theories about gospel origins, that would make that some of the earliest material. And yet, um, that is a, a striking statement about the exclusive knowledge, not only of Jesus of the Father, which would be a remarkable statement for him to say in first century Jewish concept, but for him to say no one knows who the Son is except the Father, also strikes me as being a little bit more than just unique sonship. Right? Unique is a very squirrely word there. So that it's used in sort of piece study. So I'll just suggest maybe to that might be something to add to that final catalog of text. And I'm curious about your thoughts on the employment of the use of the miraculous, um, you know, the miracles of Jesus as part of this human self-consciousness. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, look, I, 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 when I was at Oxford, I used to go to the New Testament seminar with the graduate students and listen to their historical Jesus stuff, and then I would also go to the dogmatic seminar and listen to the Christology stuff, and I was the only person who went to both seminars at the time I was at Oxford. And you know, I saw I got used to just totally different discourses and logics. Not incompatible, but not there's no there's not sufficient conversation. So even when even though I know that you and I probably have very convergent views on even probably you know questions of what we're likely to believe about the historical Jesus as reflected in the New Testament, the 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 people you're talking to when you're analyzing the text and the the way you're forming arguments is a little different. And I think it would take actually time for me to sit down. And go through like what I'm, who, what I'm doing methodologically in my own mind as systematic theologian, what you're doing in terms of the making the historical exegetical arguments, and I find I think we'd find things intermesh, but they're, they're slightly different, um, not just discourses, disciplines or methods and commitments. They're both needed, and so let me just say though, then to try to interact with you because I think it's even when people agree strongly, it's hard to interact because we're dealing with two methodological practices. I'm talking actually in this paper mostly to systematic theologians. And I built in, in the way I did this, if you go and look at the text, which you all have a little more in detail, you can see like little places where I'm writing myself blank checks to protect myself um, with the systematic theology crowd. Because all I really am committing to is that the New Testament gives us literary depictions of the historical Jesus, of who they think he was, that are written, of course, in a different way than we would write history today, but which may have enough indicative, convergent material about certain ways he spoke habitually that we can reasonably infer that it is probable and likely that he said some of these kinds of things about himself. So I'm not committing in the detail that this or that uh, instantiation of, uh, like, this miracle existed, like the walking on the sea, although I definitely think it's important to believe in it, but uh, for reasons of supernatural faith, but, but just that they keep showing him saying, I am, or there's some kind of name lodge. So it's a kind of argument from convergent instances. It's hard to count them all out. And I don't want with the systematic theologians to have to have the burden of demonstrating to the exegetes to believe this, to argue that it's possible or probable. Now, I do think it is very incongruent to use an apologetic method to argue that Jesus of Nazareth said and did the kinds of things that could give rise to the early Christian movement but we want it uh, abstract from miracles until we get the resurrection, which we do want to, in the end, say was a bodily resurrection, but we don't want to avert to the possibility of supernatural instances of miraculous activity prior to bodily resurrection. That seems to me extremely incoherent, but that's an incoherent philosophical position of being uh, a Spinozist, uh, Reimarsian, Lessingite 
before the resurrection and then being a Chalcedonian afterwards. And I just like to have one philosophy of reality. So, um, I mean, I'm perfectly happy with the Humean or the Thomist, but I don't want to have to be one one day and one the other. I understand for apologetic purposes to win people over to thinking that you might abstract from certain aspects of the mission of the life of Christ because of the crowd you're talking to. And I think that's often what's happening. I had an interesting conversation recently with Walter Casper and in Rome because one of my students was in the bookstore buying his book for the Modern Christology Seminar where it was one of our 11 books we were reading. And he was in the bookstore. So the student invited him to class. In fact, then we got invited to the Pontifical Council of Christian Unity. And in the, in the early, in the first volume of Jesus the, of the Christ, he says, today, Christol the theologians of Christology, we can defend and we should you know, avert to Christ's healing miracles, but we ought not to believe in the, in the nature miracles, which is a strange inconsistency. But it's interesting that in the preface of the second edition, which is what we're reading, he goes back and says, I shouldn't have said that. We really should believe in the nature miracles as well as the healing miracles. There's a deeper inconsistency uh, and logic in that. So it's a place that he changed and moved. And um, so I, it, it's an internal conversation among systematic theologians. Hello, Father. I'm John West from Auburn University. Uh, when I first arrived at this conference, I did not believe that Jesus had a music vision, and you've all convinced me. So thank you for that. Well, keep some of your perplexities because, you know, you're going to need it to work as you do more Christology. <laughs> but it was precisely just uh, such a perplexity that I wanted to bring up to you. Yeah. The, it is evident from the Gospels that Jesus suffered, that he cried. And we hear in the Revelations that when we see God, all tears shall be wiped away. How do we understand the beatific vision or Jesus' own self-consciousness on the cross in light of the fact that he had the beatific vision? Yeah. Well, that's a famous um, argument uh, used against the uh, affirmation that Christ had the vision, and um, I dedicated. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, it's okay. Well, you know, it's not clear the Holy Office is going to come after you if you do. The, uh, um, the, the. Um, I, I, de I devote a, a, de a lot to this I, this question in my book, The Incarnate Lords, and I'm not going to rehearse that argument here, uh, and I'm going to liberate you all very soon. But, um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, Aquinas has some, there are ways that I think we can develop what Aquinas articulates in Tertia Pars, question 46, I believe it's articles 7 and 8, about the mysterious um, peace that Christ experiences in the cross in virtue of his perfect human knowledge of his identity and uh, simultaneous intensive agony that he exists, that, he, that exists in him or that he experiences in virtue of that perfective knowledge. Uh, so um, the more you know someone, the more you can love them. But precisely because you know them and love them, if they suffer, you might suffer more acutely in virtue of your perfect knowledge and love. And that's a human analogy. You know, you, you, you might suffer more when a friend is dying because you know and love that person with a great acuity, and you are sensitive to what that represents. And so Christ is consoled by, Aquinas calls it the higher, uh, in the higher intellect, by which he means in his, in his human mind and so forth, he knows in the peace of the beatific vision that he's one with the Father, even in the extraordinary suffering of his death. But he also says he suffers in his intellect and will, in virtue of what he calls lower knowledge, as he looks out into the world and he sees 
in virtue specifically of the perfection of his insightful knowledge, the um, dramatic tribulation of the human condition, the sinfulness of the human person, uh, the, the, the threat of imminent loss of eternal life in members of the human race, uh, the gravity of human evil. And Aquinas says that because of the perfection of that knowledge, he also experiences the most acute contrition of heart motivated by charity that any human being ever has and experiences in a certain way the agony of love. Uh, and so there's, there's a kind of interesting development of thinking there, which I, I believe one could reflect on that. In fact, to suffer acutely for us, he actually needs the perfection of charity. We have to thank Father Thomas.